Ian Haley Pollock is the author of two poetry collections, Ghost Like a Place, published by Alice James Books, it came out just this past September, and Spit Back a Boy, which won the 2010 Cave Canem Poetry Prize. It was published by the University of Georgia Press. Ian's individual poems have appeared in American Poetry Review, The Baffler, and The New York Times Magazine. He teaches English at Rye County Day School in Rye, New York, and is a member of the poetry faculty at the Solstice MFA program of Pine Manor College. He also serves as poetry editor at Solstice Literary Magazine. And I was interested in an art that could bear the weight of puzzling out, but also gave me some immediate pleasure, right? And and reflected the, the lives, in some ways, of, of people who were recognizable to me, but also um, gave me windows into experiences which I knew to be important but were very different than mine. In this episode of The Spine, he, like all of my guests, talks about how he became a reader and the books and writers who've had the greatest influence on him. I'm Gail Marie, host and creator of The Spine. Thank you for listening. Let's get right to it. Ian, thank you so much for being on The Spine. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Let's start at the beginning and tell me a little bit about how you started becoming a reader and what what it was like maybe growing up in your family or your first reading experiences in school. Yeah, my parents are both academics, um, and my father eventually left higher ed and, and became an elementary, uh, first a high school teacher and then an elementary school teacher. So I can't remember a time when there weren't books in the house, and to this day, there are just every room in my parents' house seems to have books in it. And I remember that from, from growing up as well. Um, so, I mean, my parents set the, the, the foundation of literacy very early on. I'm, I was read to as a child. I was fortunate to be read to as a child. Um, I'm now that I have children, like I'm, I'm reading Ferdinand and I just have distinct memories of that book. You know, those are some of my earliest memories. Um, reading those sort of classic ch- uh, children's stories. Sure. Do you remember some of your favorites? Um, definitely Ferdinand. I yeah. think because I, I, I was always a big kid, but I always felt really gentle. So I think that story really um, resonated for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that you're reading what was so important to you as a child to your own children. Uh, do yeah. they enjoy it as much? It's funny. My elder son, Asa, did not like Ferdinand and I had to stop reading it because I felt like I was like foisting it upon him. But my my younger boy, um, Isaac, really loves it. Cool. Yeah, but it is interesting that I'm also aware of the limitations of of what I encountered as as a kid. And um, I think I'm consciously reading my children, new children's books, Mm -hmm. books that I I wasn't that weren't a part of, of my reading life. Um, and I think children's literature is much more diverse than when I was, certainly when I was growing up in the, the um, late 70s and early 80s. So it's great, you know, like both of my kids like Happy Feet, that's illustrated by E.B. Lewis. Um, Robbie Robertson put out that great Hiawatha and the Peacemaker hmm. maybe a year or two ago, which yeah. is really interesting. And it's like much better than the, the Longfellow poem that I grew up with. You know, it's much more dignified. Sure. One of the books that you have on the list that you sent me um, is a series of children's books called The Swallows and the Amazons. When did you read that? 
I don't know that I actually read it. I recall my father reading it to me. Okay. So, I mean, that's in a similar vein. I think that's a book that he grew up with. He's English and he grew up in Northwestern England. And so that much of that series is set um, in the Lake District in England, which my English geography is right, would have been just north of where he grew up. Okay. I think it's it's interesting in the, w- the way in which we as parents try and transmit what was important to us as, as children. There's just constant wanting to replicate our own childhood and also like reacting against, reacting against it in some ways. And there's always that push and pull. But that's a, a moment where I think he had really loved those books. I think they came out in the 30s and 40s. And I think they were important to him. As, as a child. And so he read them to me. And I, I just remember loving every book of, of the series and it tapped into my like sense of my boyhood sense of adventure. Uh, I lived in faculty housing at University of California, Irvine, and I had this great other crew of faculty kids. And it was still under, I mean, this was California in the, the 80s. So it was still under development. There were lots of places to play, um, like houses, there were all these building sites that weren't very well policed and we could, we could run around in them. So these kids having these adventures, um, on these sailboats in, in the Lake district kind of lined up with this childhood that I was having or that I wanted to have in some way, sense of adventure that I, that I wanted to have. Yeah. So you had access to an excellent library. Yeah, I, I don't know where those books came from. I don't know if he ordered them or like how they came into the house. I mean, we, this is obviously like the pre-Amazon era. Like yeah. I remember going to B. Dalton's and um, all these bookstores that don't exist anymore, right? Even the, the corporate, like B. Dalton's was a chain, right? Um, even the corporate ones don't don't really exist. So I have a feeling that he might have had to order them from England, like he had family there. So yeah. I'm, I'm sure those books were coming over. Um, yeah. I know he got the the Manchester Guardian newspaper was coming into the house regularly. Um, so there was a link there to his, you know, to his family and to the place where he grew up. Sure. Sure. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Yeah, I have a younger sister. And is she is, a reader as well? Yeah. I mean, she's a librarian, so she's... <laughs> probably even a bigger reader than I am in, in a lot of ways. Do you remember encouraging her to read growing up? Yeah, I, I mean, I remember being a, a torturous older brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's a little bit of an age difference, six years. So I think, you know, that that's, that's it's a it's a big age difference. That is. I mean, we now read pretty similar books, but I, um, when I stay with my parents, I'm in a room that I like to say she stole from me when I left for college, but it has all her books in it. And it's really interesting to have the access to like what, um, a, maybe what she was reading from 17 to 25 ish. It's really interesting to see how someone else who is related to you had the same parents and ended up reading a completely different set of books, both by virtue of, the differences in our education and by, um, you know, difference in temperament. Sure. And some of it is gendered too, you know, like, um, Swallows and Amazons and also the Dragonlance series that I, that I read later, you know, to me are 
about an adventure and escape. And, and a lot of the books that I read when I was in my early 20s, like um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and even On the Road and The Beach by Alex Garland, like, those books are escapist. I, I now see that I was trying to I'm not sure what I was trying to escape, but I knew that it was, you know, I was entering this world that I would probably never be a part of. Yeah. What did you read in um, elementary school? Do you remember books that you would read for class or just for fun on the bus, maybe? Or Yeah, I remember Encyclopedia Brown. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that mystery series. Um, I remember Choose Your Own Adventures because those books, I still am not a, I don't reread books very often huh it that that was one of the few times in my life where rereading became important right because there was a, a premium on rereading because there, there would be a new story right right ever you could make a new story your choices and you were it was more interactive than a lot of the reading you had some agency in the story in a way that you know Otherwise, fiction is very passive. Like, obviously, I wasn't thinking about it in these terms when I was right. 10. But now that I, I think about it, and also some of this is informed by me as, as a teacher, right? Like, and thinking about what what sets, what are those foundations of literacy for mm-hmm. students who are, who are teenagers? Sure. And the, and the rereading is less rereading than maybe revisiting something fam- fam- that starts familiar, but ends differently right. it's a different kind of rereading it's a very different type of rereading. yeah because you get a, a different you ultimately get a different story completely yeah um, i think in a lot of ways th- those are precursors of the type of narrative that happens in in video games yes now, where you know like the story can end up in in different ways i mean i haven't really played video games in the last decade but like I, of what i remember like mm. where video games were headed when i stopped playing them it seemed like there were so many different options and that was familiar to me from those um yeah. your own adventure books yeah very story very like narrative driven anyway yeah um Let's see. But it's interesting that you asked me like what books I I read in school because I was very conscious and again I, I had my teacher hat on while I was um, making this observation. Very few of the books that I put on the list were books I was assigned in school. Mm-hmm. I found that interesting. I mean, Invisible Man. I think I was a, I read in in a college African American literature course, but I had already read it twice by that point. Okay. I know that that sometimes that book gets cut up into short stories like battle royale is just a chapter of invisible man um so i think that and i had i know i was assigned that before i read the entire novel but otherwise i think almost everything on on that list i was never assigned to read in school which is interesting to me because i know i read plenty of books for school but those aren't the books that sit with me and, and stay with me. Right. Which isn't unusual. Um, I think it's unusual at all, but as an English teacher, it's it's not. Yeah. Those aren't conversations that I think we often have as, as English teachers. Like, we all love reading, but where did that, that love of reading was much more inspired by my parents buying me whatever, like taking me to the bookstore saying like, there's the section, 
for you, go, go pick out a book. Or even I'm having National Geographic and Smithsonian Magazine lying around the house. Right. right. Uh, those were much more formative experiences and catered. I mean, so much the problem with Canon, right? Like the Canon is very narrow in a way that many people still aren't willing to, to admit. And then if you want to read and find yourself in, in the literature and find your own, um, your own interests there, right? Yeah. You have to go outside of the Canon and, and many school programs are, are pretty, pretty well, prescribed as, as to what you can read. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking, I'm, you know, of course, thinking of things that I had to read in school and the t like elementary school. And the two I remember are Scarlet Letter and Pilgrim's Progress. You read Scarlet Letter in elementary school. I, does that seem young? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe young, it was like, Maybe it was junior high or high school, but definitely, definitely Pilgrim's Progress and yeah. Anne Frank, the Diary of Anne Frank. Um, like those are the three that really stick with me. And I enjoyed the Diary of Anne Frank. I didn't like the other two at all. I found them very um, disturbing and kind of spooky. Kind of like I felt with like with Goodnight Moon. There was something about that book that did not sit well with me, and it wasn't just the the images that I thought were kind of spooky. Um, but yeah, there is something about how we ingest assigned reading versus our chosen our chosen reading. Right. Yeah. I mean, your chosen reading is also tends to be at your reading level, right? I mean, I now love Romeo and Juliet, but I when I read that in eighth grade. Most of the language went so far over my head. And like most of the genius of the play just went so far over my head. And that I, I really don't think I understood it till I had to teach it to eighth graders. Mm. And I'm trying to make it palatable to them as it's, you know, soaring over their head. And I think there's something to be said for contending with language that's a little too difficult for you and, and piecing it together. But I wonder like where the balance is between um, just letting kids read what they enjoy and uh -huh. also teaching that because some of it is like literature appreciation, right? In the way that there's music appreciation or sure. art appreciation. And I think that's what a lot of high school programs end up doing. Yeah. They're teaching the appreciation, especially of 19th and 20th century literature. And you wonder how much the kids are really appreciating. Right. Also. By having to read some of that because no, it's not unusual at all for me to talk to writers and, and talk about um, what they remember reading versus what they were assigned to read, which sometimes they can like rattle off the titles, but sure. they aren't the books that they end up like digging into. Uh, yeah, I think, I think reading in, in terms of reading literature, like capital L literature, I, I think it's retrospective hmm. much more or retroactive much more than people are willing to admit. Like I can now, I would like nothing better for the next week than to curl up with a Thomas Hardy book. But I, I don't think I would have said that until the last 10 or 15 years. Right. And I think it's, I think you have to build up, um, build up to that point, especially as like the language and grammar starts to, mm -hmm. to change. And as we get farther and farther from, 
um, from the 19th century, right? Right. So if you weren't assigned, for example, this Norton Anthology of Modern Poetry, second yeah. edition that's on your list, <laughs> how did you come across it? Um, it was in my college bookstore at Haverford College. Oh. They had, a, I can't remember the exact details of it, but you had, you had like a bookstore account, which was meant for your course text, but was much more than you could have possibly spent on your course text. So you always had money left over. And it was, it was part of your, you had a separate, you so you had tuition, you had room and board, and then you had a bookstore account. So I remember in addition to like buying many king size Snickers bars, <laughs> I think one of the things that I bought at the bookstore, as I became more and more interested in the writing of poetry, I, I bought the Norton Anthology. And um, so if, you know, like Fear and Loathing and On the Road and those sorts of books were what I was reading, like maybe freshman and sophomore year for pleasure. I, I distinctly remember by the summer after junior year and the summer after I graduated, spending time just like browsing through Norton. Um, because my, my poetry, and I think this is still true, poetry education stops with modernists. And maybe if you're lucky, you read something about Bishop and Lowell. Hmm. Um, and to just see that there was a world of, of poets who were, you know, in, in my, at least my parents' generation, if not, if not a bit younger, mm. was, was amazing to me. And I think anthologies are great ways to learn when you're young. Just, I, it was a way to get exposed to so much poetry and really fall in love with the art in a way that I think sometimes when you just read one collection you're like oh this person is a great poet and it's sort of isolated from yeah all of the poets yeah and i mean the other nice thing about the anthology too is that that first little bit right when you turn to a new writer a new author and it gives you a little bio so you exactly. get a little background right. who this person is and and the times they lived in and the historical significance of certain events that happened that may have shaped what they were writing about or how they were thinking and um, and yeah, you're right. You, obviously, we wouldn't get that if you just bought a bunch of random poetry books. Yeah, exactly. And I think from there, I, you know, I, I distinctly remember. Um, so I lived in Boston with three friends from college um, after we graduated. And I think we were all feeling like that intellectual void when you like move from college to the working world and went to the uh, Barnes and Nobles and or, uh, Borders in Cambridge. And, and I remember picking up a Theodore Rutke collection because I had read his poems in the Norton and, and loved it. And um, the poet I is the other poet who I remember really coming out of that experience, really um, loving. And yeah. yeah. What was it about those two of all of the, you know, poets you probably came across in that anthology? What is it about those two? Yeah. I think in their own way, and probably I'm more so than Rathke, we're just writing very human stories. After, like, when your educate when your poetry education is the moderns, right? There's there's a distance in them, right? There, there's there's a built-in distance that they're trying, they're purposely trying to be 
for me, I think they're trying to be distant and a little aloof. Um, and, and the weight of all of those illusions is, makes it really, it, it's scholars work. It's something to, to puzzle out. Right. Um, and I was interested in an art that could bear the weight of puzzling out, but also gave me some immediate pleasure. Right. Uh -huh. Um, and, and reflected the, the lives in, in some ways of, of people who were recognizable to me, but also um, gave me windows into experiences which I knew to be important, but were very different than mine. I studied English literature in my undergrad, and then I went to graduate school and actually got a master's in it. After college, again, because of that that void you feel, and I hadn't started grad school yet. I just took a random class with a friend at some, I don't, I think it was a community college just because I was so hungry for more of right, whatever exactly. I could get. And, um, I went to a four year, a great four year university. And it wasn't until I took this, maybe it was even like a summer course at a community college where I was asked to take apart my first poem. Mm. And um, Lady of Shalott. Oh, yeah. That's Innocent. what it was. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't like poetry. I liked Emily Dickinson. Um, for some reason, I liked her, but no one else. And uh, yeah. I didn't want to do it, and I didn't want to do it. But I'm like, okay, this is why I signed up for the class. So let's do it. And I, like, that's what blew it wide open for me. And ever since then, I've been... A, a big poetry reader, but yeah. there is something about the structure of a class and someone to make you sit down and turn something in or present something to other people who care. In terms of assigned reading, I, I took a poetry class my senior year. I think it was called from Tennyson to Eliot. So it was sort of the pre-modern, some of the, I'm, I'm forgetting my terms now, but the pre-Raphaelites. Okay. Um, and I really remember loving Tennyson in a way that I don't think is cool now. You know, he's not a, a poet who is de jour. You know, he, he comes off as a little old fashioned. And, um, but yeah, I think he's the beginning of, of North. He's in the early stages of that Norton anthology, if, if I'm remembering correctly. And I, I do as much as I love, I think I was on the more contemporary end mm -hmm. of that anthology. Uh, I know it's been redone. I think it's now called Modern and Contemporary. So this was like the one that was out in the late 90s. Um, okay. And I remember loving Tennyson as well. And just, there was something, and some of it was like growing up with myth in my house. My mother's a classics professor. So okay. I grew up with Greek myths. But, you know, England is also a place that's full of its own legend and lore. And obviously um, Tennyson was rewriting some of the King Arthur myth and those myths were, I had illustrated King Arthur books, multiples of the, of those in my house. So I think his, mm. that sort of bardic impulse that he has really fit for me. Yeah. It was familiar, but you didn't always enjoy reading poetry. It, it sounds like not until you maybe got to, to college. I think what your my reaction to them, to modernism is something I've picked up as an adult. Mm. I really love, so in my senior year of high school, we had to, in the way that you were talking about Lady of Shalott, we had to um, 
contend with proof rock. Yeah. And in a way that just, you know, it was it was far too difficult for me at the time. Like the, the, the illusions are coming one after another. But I think that experience of, of really, um, yeah, contending with with a poet, like really made me love Elliot. And but the more I found out about um, the more I read Elliot and and the more you you learn about I know you're supposed to do. Well, I know there's a school of thought that, you know, you divorce the artist from the art, but that's never quite sat well with me. <laughs> and the more I learned about um, Elliot and just like the more you like I understood what he was doing. And, you know, some of his poems I, are just I find outright objectionable. Like I, I sort of distanced myself from that. But I think the there's something still in, in the language that I responded to when I read it in, in high school. And my parents bought me this um, anthology, I Am the Darker Brother, which I had, I mean, I remember having that in middle school, if not earlier. Um, and some of those poems are still very Im important to me. And, um, you know, and some of the poets in the, in that anthology, so like Gwendolyn Brooks, Langston right. Hughes, um, Robert Hayden. Right. Maya Angelou, Rita Dove. That one was first published in uh, 1968. It was um, one of the first collections of African-American poetry specifically created with the young reader in mind. Yeah, it was It was such, I, I just, you know, look at the table of contents now and we real cool. I mean, Cross especially was, as, as a mixed race kid, that poem ends, I wonder where I'm going to die, being neither white nor black. And I really responded to that. Being mixed race when I was growing up was, I, it was not common for me to run into someone else who was mixed race who wasn't my sister. Um, and, you know, now that I teach high school, I've taught in Philadelphia and now I teach in suburban New York. There are mixed race kids left and right. Um, but I, at that time, when I'm growing up in, in California and in upstate New York, not seeing many people who had had the experience that I had and reading those lines in Langston Hughes, even though the poem is very, has very different sort of family circumstances than my circumstance, um, than my family circumstances. Um, those last two lines really resonated. I, I always felt to, to some extent, um, outside of, of both worlds or uncomfortable with this racial binary that has been set up. In, since time immemorial in, in the U.S., so yeah, um, yeah, and I just I just go through through the table of contents, and you know, if we must die by Claude McKay, um, just has such a defiant spirit that I loved it, and, and that that poem strangely, um, you know, so he was Jamaican, right, and so he was a British, he was actually a British subject, and that poem was read uh, Winston Churchill, I believe read the poem during the Battle of Britain as a sort of uh, a rallying point to fight back against the, the Nazis or to at least endure as the Nazis are, huh. are bombing. So that that poem, and my I think my father knew that history, so that, that poem kind of spoke to two different sides of me. Um, right. And so, yeah, so I, I think I, I'm more opinionated about poetry now than when I was a kid, but I've, I, I think I've always... Um, felt felt drawn to it. 
when did you read Robert Hayden? Um, he was yeah. on your list all alone, no book attached to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I read him in I Am the Darker Brother, those winter Sundays. I mean, it's, it, it might have gone the distance as my favorite poem from the, the time I first read it at 10 until, until now. Um, and then in grad school, I guess to correct myself, I was assigned, um, his collected works when I was in grad school, but I had already, I, I, I remember owning the book already mm -hmm. at, at that point. So I had read it. Um, but just to, to go back and as a model of how to be a poet, I'm interested in history. Um, I, history is probably my favorite subject in school more so than, more so than English. Mm. Um, and, and so I'm interested in the way that he uses history, but also personal experience, um, in such a variety of, of different ways and how formally varied, um, he is as well. Would you want to read those winter Sundays? Is it a long one or an excerpt no, sure. or I would, nothing better than to do that? I would love that. I wish I was one of those awesome poets who um, <laughs> knew everything from memory. I'm, I'm so in awe of those winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fly fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? You said you read that when you were a kid, 10, 12? Yeah. What did that did it have an effect on how you thought about your own father, your own parents yeah, I mean, in your was, life? You will never hear like an up from the bootstraps story from me. I've always been very aware of the fact that I, I stand on my parents' shoulders and that they afforded me um, many of the privileges that I've, I've had in my life. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of the generation after the generation that, that fought those civil rights battles. And that was a part of like the lore of, of growing up. That was part of the, the history of, of growing up. So I was aware of what the world had been and what it was for me and how it was different, how the America I lived in was different than the America my mother grew up in and and in her own ways worked to change. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I would, that, that idea that your, your parents love you through action and what they provide for you, I, I think resonated even when I was a child mm -hmm. because of gr growing up with that. Sure. That history in mind. Um, I often teach the poem, and every time I teach it, I feel like I'm unlocking something, <laughs> something new, or 
I mean, one of the great parts of, about teaching is that you learn from your students and, you know, a student will point out something that I, in my very narrow way of reading the poem, have never considered. When did you um, come across Lucille Clifton? Um, yeah, Lucille Clifton was interesting because she came into my life at a time in, in graduate school when I was meeting living writers um, and like connecting writers with actual flesh and blood people who created the art. Right. And I, so she read it at Syracuse and in a class that was called Living Writers, um, in a program that was called Living Writers. And she was just, I mean, I loved her poems, but once you, once I met her, like it opened up another dimension of the poems to me to hear her read them in her own voice and hear her talk a little bit about the experiences that went into the poem. I, I think it made me appreciate um, the connection between life and, and poetry, which I generally think gets overplayed. Like poetry is fiction ultimately, um, but because of the prevalent use of the first person pronoun, people often think that this is memoir, yep. right? Um, but hearing her, knowing how how much her lived experience had informed her poems really made me appreciate like a certain style of, of like plain spoken literature that, I mean, all literature in some way is like artifice, right? Like you're trying to create the illusion of, of lived life in a, through a medium that is not lived life, mm -hmm. right? that is created through reflection after the fact. But I appreciate how closely she could she could get um, to that. Um, any any other books or writers you wanted to mention before we wrap it up? I think in middle school I, I read um, the autobiography of Malcolm X shortly before Spike Lee's movie came out, and that was a really important text. I I think a lot about Malcolm X's genesis as a as a person from being called Detroit Red to you know the for all intents and purposes the the face and voice of the nation of Islam to someone who who took the pilgrimage to Mecca to Mecca and saw the diversity of the Islamic world and just that change from being a small time hustler to a, a man of the world um, yeah, I, I think is is inspirational for me in in a lot of ways. Like, I, I think negotiating the the way in which America can be parochial mm. and and remove itself from the world, and the way in which I think then the black population becomes parochial and gets removed from the world, even though it's had a great influence on on world culture. I think it was important for me to to think about that journey. I'm talking about it in a more sophisticated way than I possibly could have understood as a middle school kid, but I um I knew that there was something important about him, you know, when he was in Mecca looking around and saying like there are, there's such a range of people here, right? There there are people there are European Muslims who have blonde hair and blue eyes and 
there are Sudanese Muslims, right? There, there's, there's people from all over the, the world and of all hues here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know that that resonated with me. For someone who's, whose father was not American, right? I, I, I don't often, you know, in all the, the debates that are happening around immigration, I don't often come forward and say, like, I am the son of an immigrant, mm-hmm. even though it's true, because I know that that means something in the current climate that means something a little different. But I, I think I had the sense that I see in other children of immigrants that there is a world beyond these shores. And I think seeing Malcolm X take that journey um, and, and go out into the world from places and from experiences and having an anger and a rage that I identified with was important as I look back and, and try to make sense of why that book looms large in my middle school years. It seems like a heavy, literally, it's a big book and yeah. a, a book to be reading as a middle school student. How yeah, you, I mean, yeah. to circle back around to the conversation about, you know, like the books I read my own children, I think I was pretty starved for books that, books about blackness and books about black maleness mm-hmm. uh, especially and um yeah i should probably i don't think i've read that book since i was 14 because you know and, and partly because i wanted to partly out of nostalgia right like i wanted to be this book that was was formative oh and you I should reread it i think you'd really I, enjoy it i don't want it to be knocked off its pedestal you know yeah I think you'll probably... I bet it will stand. I'm I'm confident that it will stand up. I think it'll stand up. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. No, this is great. I love the idea for this podcast. It's actually like really liberating to not feel beholden to talk about writing and just to be able to talk about books, which is, you know, like why I'm reading, which is how I got into it. And yeah, so this was great. This was, was comfortable. It was fun. That was poet Ian Haley Pollock, whose book, Ghosts Like a Place, out in September, was published by Alice James Books. Head to the show notes section of thespineshow.com and click on episode 16 to see a list of the books and writers he mentions, as well as some memorable quotes from the episode. I'm Gail Marie. Thank you for listening. Keep reading and let it shape how you think, love, and live.